Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. As the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine speeds up, so does the spread of misinformation. Dr. Betrija Nikosevich will break down some common myths and give you the science about the risks and benefits of the vaccine. Dr. Nikosevich is an assistant professor of clinical sciences in Roosevelt's Doctor of Pharmacy program. After working in community pharmacy for eight years, Dr. Nikosevich now cares for patients as a clinical pharmacist on Chicago's South Side. Today's episode is part of the COVID-19 Vaccine Explained series. Our guest host is Dr. Melissa Hogan, Dean of the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy. I hope you'll enjoy their conversation. Welcome to the second of our four-part series on the COVID-19 vaccine. My name is Melissa Hogan, and I am the Dean of the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy here at Roosevelt University. In each session, we discuss a different aspect of the COVID-19 vaccine. Last week's session with Dr. Robert Sizer was entitled, From Trials to Vials. Next week, on February 24th, we'll be joined by special guest, Dr. Tamara Marshall, who will discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately impacted communities of color. Our final session will take place on March 3rd with Dr. Jason Allegro, who will share his experience as an infectious disease pharmacist caring for patients in the COVID-19 pandemic. All of the sessions will be streamed live from noon to one and will also be available on the Roosevelt University and Justice For All podcast, which can be found on the RU website and wherever you listen to podcasts. During our live broadcast today, you'll have the opportunity to ask questions feel free to type them into the chat and we'll save time at the end to address them. I would now like to introduce today's guest, Dr. Bedria Nikosiewicz, who will discuss many of the common myths and misconceptions around the COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Nikosiewicz earned her Doctor of Pharmacy degree at the University of Illinois at Chicago in 2008. Upon graduation, she worked as a staff pharmacist and a pharmacy manager in a community pharmacy for eight years. Then in 2016, she transitioned to teaching at Roosevelt University College of Pharmacy, where she currently serves at the rank of Assistant Professor of Clinical Sciences, and where her teaching is focused on pharmacy law and the practical knowledge and skills needed to be an effective pharmacist. Dr. Nikosiewicz is passionate about service to Roosevelt, her community, and the profession of pharmacy. She currently serves as Chair of Roosevelt University's Faculty Issues Committee, board president of the Bosnian-Herzegovinian American Community Center and chair of the Illinois Pharmacists Association Professional Affairs Committee. In 2016, Dr. Nikosiewicz was appointed to serve on the Illinois Healthcare and Family Services Drug Utilization Review Board. Finally, Dr. Nikosiewicz also works as an ambulatory care clinical pharmacist 
at the Diabetes and Endocrinology Center for Excellence at Holy Cross Hospital on Chicago's South Side. Dr. Nikoshevich, thank you for joining us today. I know that people are anxious to understand more about the COVID-19 vaccine and that you have a lot of information to discuss with us. But before I start, I want to ask you to tell the audience a little bit more about yourself and your role in the COVID-19 vaccine mass immunization effort. Can you tell us what you've been doing at Mount Sinai Hospital? Uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me here today. It's certainly a pleasure being here with you and our listeners. As a pharmacist whose primary practice experience comes from community pharmacy, I was always used to being there for my patients and helping them navigate any health challenges they might encounter. And immunizations always played an important role in providing this care to my patients. When COVID-19 vaccines became available, I offered to help with the efforts to administer these vaccines. And these efforts included mixing and administering the vaccines, as well as providing counseling regarding adverse effects and addressing patient concerns regarding indications and interactions. So what does it feel like to be part of the immunization effort? Well, after not being able to do very much about COVID-19 for over a year, being able to participate in an effort to end this pandemic was truly exhilarating. As a part of this effort, I also had an opportunity to work side by side with our students in administering the vaccine. And I have to tell you, I was truly impressed by their professionalism as well as the level of commitment, competence, and compassion that they exhibited in doing this important work. I know we're really, really proud of all of our students and our faculty who have been partaking in this effort. And it's been really gratifying to see us start to come out of the pandemic because of these efforts. So I know we have a lot to talk about today and I'd like to start with something really basic. Can you explain briefly how vaccines work in general to protect us from disease? Well, in the simplest terms, the vaccines work by imitating a bacteria or a virus to train our body to recognize and fight the virus by enabling our body to produce antibodies and other specialized cells that can inactivate that bacteria or virus. If I may use an analogy, let's say a virus or a bacteria is a burglar. So without a vaccine, that burglar comes into your house and steals everything inside before you even realize he or she is there, destroying everything around him as, as he goes. But now let's say you have a neighbor who sees the burglar coming and calls you and warns you of this danger and even tells you which door this burglar will come through. You now have time to prepare yourself to defend yourself and hopefully stop that burglar before he ever enters your house. Vaccines in this case are that neighbor that tells your body to expect danger, and they even provide instructions on how to defend itself from this danger. The antibodies and those other special cells in your body that inactivate the virus are your door locks and other protective mechanisms that you can use to fight off the burglar. Okay, so that makes sense. So you're basically getting yourself ready, training yourself, getting all the tools you need so that when that burglar or that virus comes in, you're able to fight it, right? Absolutely. So I want to get right into the myth now. One of the things I've heard from people that people are worried about is that the vaccines seem like they were almost rushed to market. They got on market so fast, right? Less than a year after we understand that we're in a pandemic, we've got a vaccine what's the basic process that we go through to approve a vaccine or any medication in our country? Absolutely. So these vaccines were definitely very thoroughly studied. 
Vaccines, like any other medications, are first tested in animal studies. And if the data from these animal studies seems to indicate that a vaccine or a drug has the potential to be safe and effective, the vaccines then proceed to clinical trials upon approval from the FDA. These clinical trials typically occur in three phases. And in phase one, we typically have 20 to 100 healthy volunteers. And during this phase, we assess the vaccine for safety and potential for efficacy in humans. And we also determine whether there are any serious side effects and how the dose of the vaccine that's being administered relates to these side effects. During phase two, we typically have several hundred volunteers. And during that phase, we determine the most common short-term side effects and determine how well the patient's bodies are able to produce antibodies to the actual vaccine itself. In phase three, the vaccine is studied on hundreds or thousands of volunteers. And in this phase, we're really trying to fine tune the vaccine and understand how people who get the vaccine and those who don't compare, meaning how effective is the vaccine really? How many of the patients who received the vaccine end up with the disease versus those who did not receive the vaccine? And we also look to see again, what those adverse effects or those side effects that we see with the vaccine might be. So, all of those steps still occurred with COVID-19 vaccines. None of those steps were skipped at any point in time. And the vaccine was studied in tens of thousands of patients. So for example, the Pfizer vaccine was studied in 44,000 patients in phase three clinical trials. And the Moderna vaccine was studied in 30,420 patients in phase three clinical trial. So I believe that most medications and vaccines take years from when they're designed until they're approved for use in people. So how is it that all those steps were done and these vaccines got approved in less than a year? That's a great question. So of course, typically when we're developing medications, we're developing medications for conditions that maybe we already have medications for, but we're trying to find improvements for the items that we currently have available. In a situation like what we have going on with the current pandemic, we truly don't have anything that we know that works to treat or prevent the disease that we are looking at. So when something like that happens, obviously there's a lot of different things that go on, including collaboration between our government and other international governments, as well as collaboration with academia, nonprofit organizations, and pharmaceutical companies that allows the government to create a strategy to prioritize and speed development of most promising treatments and vaccines. In addition to this, a lot of funding goes into developing these new treatments because again, a pandemic is not only a threat to our health, but also has threatened economies across the globe. So a lot of funding was given to these companies to look for solutions to this problem. And then finally, the FDA communicated very clearly to pharmaceutical industry regarding the type of data and information that was needed in order for the FDA to be able to provide feedback on their proposed plans and to assess the data provided and to in some way speed up the development by giving them clear expectations and giving that feedback more often so that this process could be shortened. So there was money given money to support the development. There was cooperation with pharmaceutical companies, with international organizations, and then there was clarity and expectations and what data, how the studies need to be designed so that they could get approved. Is that 
essentially what happened. We sort of all the pieces came together in a way that they don't normally come together. Absolutely. And if you if you think about FDA as a government organization, they typically meet very rarely compared to many other committees that that meet way more often. So in this case, when we have a pandemic going on, the FDA actually met more often in order to evaluate this data and made sure that this feedback was provided in a timely manner so that the manufacturers could fine tune their studies, but also provide the data that was requested in a more timely manner as well. So, so that makes sense. So it's not by happenstance. It's, it, it really, it was a concerted funded effort where everybody worked really hard to get these to market. Just one more question about the approval that I hope you can clear up. So I understand these, the two vaccines that we have now, Pfizer and Moderna are approved under emergency use authorization. How is that different from normal FDA approval? Absolutely. So the emergency use authorization is actually just a different mechanism that the FDA does use occasionally to facilitate the availability and use of medical countermeasures, which could include vaccines during public health emergencies, such as the current COVID-19 pandemic. And under an EUA, the FDA is actually able to allow the use of unapproved medical products or unapproved uses of medical products to diagnose, treat, or Uh, prevent serious or life-threatening diseases or conditions when certain criteria are met, um, including the fact that, you know, there are no adequate approved and available alternatives. As a part of this process, the FDA still reviews all of the available data prior to making a determination regarding a product, and they do maintain their rigorous safety and efficacy standards. So it's really important to note here, again, that none of the safety steps were skipped during this process. The FDA met more often than usual, which allowed for a faster review of data. And it's also important to note that, you know, even though these products are approved and available for use under the emergency use authorization, the FDA does have a commitment to the public to continue to monitor all products, regardless of whether they came to market through an EUA or through the standard process, the FDA does continue to monitor their side effect profiles, they continue to monitor the efficacy and ensure that they continue to be safe and effective for the public. Okay, so that, I think that makes sense. So this is just sort of a special process when there's really a crisis that the FDA goes to to get products to market faster. And I imagine there's some data they still need to collect, right? Like how long it works or as variants emerge, we'll be collecting more data on that as well. I wanna talk now about the two vaccines that are are available, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And these medications have been available since December and are being administered to millions of people across the country. They are called mRNA vaccines. Can you explain what that means? Absolutely. And I'm going to refer to one of my slides here really quickly to sort of illustrate that for those that are attending today. And I will describe those slides as well as I can for those that will be listening to the podcast. But essentially, whenever we encounter a new virus, what we try to do is find out what that part of the virus is that causes the disease or that causes our immune system to respond to that virus appropriately. And one of the things that we found with this SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, is that there is this particular spike protein that rests on the surface of the virus that actually activates our immune system and induces it to 
boost defenses against the virus itself if it is ever presented with the virus in the future. So scientists were actually able to utilize that knowledge to develop a small piece of mRNA that essentially gives our body instructions to produce this particular spike protein. And so what we see in the image on the right-hand side of the slide here is... So your graphic, first of all, you've got a picture that so many people have seen of that. It looks like a photograph of the virus with those little red spikes coming out of it. And I assume that's the spike protein we're talking about. And then you've got this picture of the cell. And it looks like that there's a lot of stuff going on inside there. But the mRNA would be working in the cell, but not in the nucleus to create these proteins, right? Exactly. And so I sort of like to think of the cell as an egg, a chicken egg. So if you think about the cell as an egg, mRNA vaccines exert their action within the egg white or the cytosol of the cell. Our DNA, the human DNA, is actually stored within the egg yolk or the nucleus of the cell. So the mRNA vaccines never actually entered the nucleus or the egg yolk. Instead, the mRNA is brought into the egg white or the cytosol where it uses the existing machinery within our bodies to produce this spike protein, which then enables our body to create an immune response to the virus if it ever encounters it in the future. So one thing I've heard a few people ask is whether or not that mRNA can actually change someone's DNA if they get the vaccine. So actually it cannot for several reasons. One, the mRNA never enters the nucleus, which is where our DNA is stored. And the other is our body has the machinery to create mRNA from DNA but it does not have the machinery that would allow the reverse process to occur. That is not something that is actually endogenous that exists within our body. Okay. So it's basically physically impossible for, even if something goes wrong and someone has an adverse effect, it could not possibly be that that mRNA slips into the, the nucleus and changes the DNA. There is no way for our body to take mRNA and create DNA out of it. No. Okay, that's reassuring. So both vaccines are called mRNA vaccines, so they essentially work the same way. Is there any difference between them, though? So in terms of the differences, you know, there might be some minor structural differences. There is certainly a difference in the protections that are used to bring mRNA into the body. mRNA itself is actually very unstable. So to bring it into the body, both of these vaccines use a lipid layer, but those are minor differences. Where we do see the difference is sort of the recommended age ranges, the dosing intervals for these vaccines. So in comparing the two, one of the things that I would like to note is that the Pfizer vaccine is approved for patients 16 years of age and older, whereas the Moderna vaccine as of right now is approved for patients 18 years of age and older. And then the Pfizer vaccine is administered with an interval of 21 days between the doses, whereas the Moderna vaccine is administered with an interval of 28 days between the doses. And then there are some minor differences in adverse effects. While many of the adverse effects are actually very similar, some of them are more common with the Moderna vaccine. So with both of the vaccines, we do see injection site pain, uh, maybe some headache, fatigue, muscle or joint pain and fever or chills. We do often see with Moderna vaccine some uh, swelling in the axillary area, so under the armpits, as well as potentially some tenderness. So that's sort of the major difference between them. In terms of efficacy, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are actually 
have similar efficacy. So the Pfizer vaccine, Pfizer vaccine's effectiveness is about 95%, whereas Moderna's is 94.1% two weeks after the second dose. And those are sort of the major similarities and differences between those two. Okay, thanks. I just want to clear up a couple things. The age difference, is it Pfizer is 16 and older, Moderna is 18 and older. Is that a result of a difference or just in terms of how they were studied? Is Pfizer more safe for younger people? We don't know that yet. Uh, we don't have data in younger people. This is just a difference that came out of the uh, clinical trials in terms of the patients that were included in those studies. So Pfizer vaccine included patients 16 years of age and older. Moderna's included patients 18 years of age and older. And so the approvals reflect that difference in the types of patients that were included in the study. And the side effect that you said happened is reported with the Moderna vaccine in terms of the swelling of the lymph node and the axillary area. In your clinical opinion, is this something people should be worried about or does it go away? So it does go away. Um, depending on the patient, it could take three to seven days to go away. One of the concerns that was brought up with this particular side effect is that some patients could also actually develop lymph node swelling. And so that might be related to this axillary swelling and tenderness because we do have lymph nodes in our uh, under our armpits. So one of the concerns that was brought up is that for women who might have a breast exam during the period of time after receiving the vaccine, they may develop concerns of potentially having breast cancer because this lymph node swelling can look similar to a breast cancer mass when they go in for this exam. However, this swelling does go down within three to seven days after receiving the vaccine and is nothing to be concerned about. Okay, so I could see that that could be scary. And it seems like it would be a good thing to know, right? So if it were cancer, it's not going to go away, right? Absolutely. And so as soon as this was noticed, we started telling patients, you know, we started asking patients about appointments for other studies or other doctor's appointments coming up with their mammogram schedules and just notifying them. You know, this is something that might occur. It's nothing to be concerned about. It will resolve on its own within three to seven days. So I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked Dr. Sizer last week. Should someone try to get Moderna or Pfizer? Is, are they similar enough that it really doesn't matter? Or should you be you know, checking out which type of vaccine is being offered at different locations? Honestly, with the limited availability of vaccines right now, you should just get whatever vaccine is available to you. The end result of both of these vaccines is the same. You will be protected against COVID-19. So as long as you can achieve that end result, whichever one of those vaccines you receive is perfectly fine. Okay, thank you. We're gonna go more into details about these vaccines. I've heard concerns about aborted fetal cells. Are those used in these vaccines? Um, no, they are not. And if we could actually pull up slide two that lists all of the ingredients in those vaccines. And if we take a look at those ingredients, what we essentially see is the mRNA, which is obviously the active part of both of these vaccines. But then we also have some lipids, which serve as protection and transportation for the vaccine. Uh, we see that there are some electrolytes to sort of uh, help keep the mRNA stable. And then there are some buffers that help maintain that acid-base ratio. So neither one of these vaccines contains aborted fetal cells. However, both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines 
did perform confirmation tests to ensure that these vaccines work using fetal cell lines. When we talk about these fetal cell lines, though, it's very important to take a look at the context that we talk about them in. It's important to understand that these fetal cell lines are not the same thing as fetal tissue. These are cells that grow in a laboratory and they descend from cells that were taken from elective abortions in the 1970s and 1980s. Those individual cells that were taken back in 1970s and 1980s have since multiplied into many new cells over the past four or five decades, which is how we got these fetal cell lines. And these current fetal cell lines are actually thousands of generations removed from the original fetal tissue. Okay, so let's talk about other ingredients. I know with some vaccines, there's concern about eggs and people who are allergic to eggs can't get certain vaccines. Is there any egg products or egg proteins in these cells? I'm looking at this list of ingredients and there's a lot of words here. If you could just break it down for us, whether or not they contain eggs or other things like that. So neither of these vaccines contain eggs, so that should not be concerning for patients who have an egg allergy. However, they do contain polyethylene glycol, which is an ingredient commonly found in Miralax, which is a medication that can be used for constipation. And patients who have had an allergic reaction to polyethylene glycol, so to Miralax, or really any colonoscopy prep, should notify the immunizer before getting the vaccine. If that allergic reaction was severe enough, that may be a person that may not be a good candidate for this particular vaccine. Okay. So people who are allergic to polyethylene glycol or anything related to preparation for a colonoscopy should probably check with their doctor and find out if they should get the vaccine. Absolutely. Okay. One more question about animal products. Is there anything in here that a vegan would not want to get? I actually double checked this five times because I am not vegan myself, but I like to try and make sure that the information I'm providing is as accurate as it can be. And PETA actually just recently released a statement confirming that vaccines made by Pfizer BioNTech, Oxford, AstraZeneca, and Moderna do not contain any animal-derived ingredients. Okay, so they're vegan-friendly. Yes, they are. Awesome. One last question, and then I'll stop asking about the ingredients. What about microchips? What's the story behind that concern, and is there any truth to it? So there is actually a twofold basis for this theory. Many, many years ago, Bill and Melinda Gates actually awarded grants to researchers to find better ways to keep track of people who are vaccinated. And one of the main reasons they wanted to have this done is because a lot of places where vaccinations are extremely important, such as undeveloped countries, also don't have medical infrastructure that would allow them to keep track of patients who have received the vaccine versus those that have not. And as a part of this effort, MIT researchers looked into using an invisible dye in order to help keep track of those patients. But those trials never actually got past animal trials. So the FDA stopped those trials after the animal trial phase. However, this created a fertile ground for theories like the one we're discussing now to come up. Additionally, sometimes there are actually chips that are on the outside of the syringe that are used to track vaccine inventory and use 
but those are never injected into patients. Again, they're on the outside of the syringe, almost like a label over the syringe that just allow for tracking of the actual vaccine doses themselves. In December 2020, there was actually a figure that was shared all over social networks in Italy, claiming that this is the diagram of the 5G chip that has been inserted into the COVID vaccine. And I actually found it interesting that a local musician from Italy quickly quipped back to that post saying that this is the electric circuit of a guitar pedal. And he, of course, made a joke of it saying that, you know, putting it in a COVID vaccine is an excellent idea. But the end point is there is no 5G chips in the vaccine. This is a theory that stemmed from research that had happened in the past. That research never came to fruition. And of course, the FDA would make sure that if there was a chip, at least patients were notified of it. Okay, so that's really interesting because I never knew where sort of the concern came from. I guess everything starts with with some piece of truth that then can be misinterpreted or create skepticism. But it sounds like these vaccines do not contain a microchip and won't be used to track people. So one last question for now about the mRNA vaccines. And this is probably the most common concern that I've heard from people. Can mRNA vaccines cause infertility? So again, if you don't mind, I'll start with where this is coming from, and then I'll talk about the actual information from the authorities out there. But the reason for this theory is because there might be a possible similarity between a protein called Synctin-1 and the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein that I mentioned earlier. This protein, the Synctin-1, is actually responsible for the formation of the placenta in pregnant females. And the concern sort of from, from the pro side is that having antibodies made to SARS-CoV-2 spike protein could also affect Synctin-1, therefore impacting the formation of the placenta. But as I was reading through all of this data, one of the scientists actually explained it as having two people that have a phone number that has the digit nine in it, Okay. If you were to dial one person's number, would you be able to actually reach the other person on it? Probably not, right? So same thing here. These proteins are not nearly similar enough for antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 to actually impact Synctin-1. And the American Society for Reproductive Medicine actually recently released a statement saying that because COVID-19 mRNA vaccines are not composed of the live virus, they are not taught to cause an increased risk of infertility, any sort of a pregnancy loss, stillbirth, or any congenital anomalies. Okay. So again, just like the microchip theory or concern, there was a real concern about similarities in protein, but when you look at it, they're not similar enough to cause any sort of problem. So even if we're making antibodies to the spike protein, we're not going to be making antibodies to that placenta-forming protein. Absolutely. Okay. Is the vaccine safe in pregnant women? So that is one of those questions that we don't have a clear answer to yet. And the reason for that is because pregnant women are typically not included in studies in clinical trials for vaccines or any other product in the initial phases. Um, so until we have that data from clinical trials and additional studies, 
What we do know is that there are limited data currently available from animal development and reproductive toxicity studies, and none of those indicated any concerns with either the Pfizer-BioNTech or the Moderna COVID-19 vaccines. There are studies that are planned in patients who are pregnant, but there are also patients who became pregnant during the clinical trials that were conducted, whether accidental or, you know, likely accidental. And those patients did not have any adverse outcomes as far as we know thus far. One of the things that we typically recommend to our pregnant patients is to discuss with their doctor and their OBGYN before receiving the vaccine to discuss their risks, their benefits, and go from there. Okay. So the data that we have so far says it's probably safe, but we don't have definitive data because we just haven't done that research yet. Absolutely. And the other thing to keep in mind is that COVID-19, if a pregnant woman were to contract COVID-19, it could actually lead to severe outcomes in those patients. So again, weighing that risk versus benefit is very carefully is extremely important for those patients. You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. So we're going to talk more generally about the vaccine. I've heard some people say that they don't need to get it because they won't get very sick if they do, even if they do catch COVID-19. So can you talk for a minute about how COVID-19 is different from a cold or the flu? So I think one of the reasons this theory is still out there is because we do know that there are coronaviruses out there. There are actually four of them that lead to symptoms that are very similar to a common cold. However, we do have three coronaviruses that typically present with much more severe symptoms. And those specifically are the SARS-CoV, which was the virus that caused SARS, the MERS-CoV, which is the virus that caused MERS, and then, of course, the current SARS-CoV-2 virus that we're dealing with that causes COVID-19. The signs and symptoms that we see in these patients are oftentimes very similar to those of patients who might present with a cold or a flu, um, including things like a dry cough, fatigue, fever, and other symptoms that might be more rare, such as body aches or chills, But in patients with COVID-19, what we also see is loss of taste or smell and shortness of breath that can be severe. So even though 80% of infections with COVID-19 are mild or asymptomatic, 15% of patients with uh, COVID-19 present with a severe infection that requires oxygen administration, and 5% of those patients present with critical infections requiring ventilation. So these fractions of severe and critical infections are actually a lot higher than what we typically see with a cold or an influenza infection. And it's also important to note that the mortality that we have for COVID-19 right now is actually much higher than what we typically see with a flu. So an estimated crude mortality ratio for COVID-19 is about 3 to 4%. And while it's likely that the actual mortality rate is a little bit lower for this particular virus, it is still much greater than the mortality of influenza, which is typically below 0.1%. Okay, so COVID-19 is definitely deadlier than the flu or other coronavirus-related colds. 
But I'm going to push you a little bit more because we know that odds are still in favor of young, healthy people with COVID-19, right? Like most of the people who have gotten very ill, who have been hospitalized and who have died have been older or have had concomitant or concurrent diseases. So other problems with or without being older. What do you think about young people? Should they get vaccinated or are they really probably okay without it? So I believe everyone should get vaccinated. And I'm going to go back to what you said about most people with COVID-19 that have had severe outcomes have been people who are elderly or those who have had concomitant conditions. However, in addition to those patients, we also hear about severe outcomes in people who were young and relatively healthy or extremely healthy. And so in order to protect ourselves and to protect our communities, it certainly is very important for all of us to receive the vaccine. So I want to just go back to the vaccines themselves, because I think, you know, for each person, they're probably thinking about their risk and benefit and whether or not they should get the vaccine. So some vaccines, I know, can actually cause the disease they're designed to prevent, right? So some people get a mild case of whatever that infection is. Is that a risk with any of the COVID vaccines, either the mRNA vaccines that we currently have or the ones coming up in the pipeline? So this is actually not a risk that we would see with any of those vaccines. All of the vaccines that are currently in the pipeline or those that are available for us to use are inactivated vaccines. Typically, those concerns are present with live vaccines, which might cause a mild case of whatever the diseases that we are trying to protect the patient against. However, one of the things that I would like to note is that even with inactivated vaccines, it does take some time for our body to develop those antibodies and to reach that full protection. So earlier I mentioned protection rates of 95% with the Pfizer vaccine and 94.1% with the Moderna's vaccine. However, to get to that point, that point was seen two weeks after the second dose of the vaccine. Remember, the doses are separated by three to four weeks for those two vaccines. So from the period of time that you receive the vaccine up until two weeks after the vaccine, you are still susceptible to the virus itself. The other thing that we have to keep in mind is that we could be exposed to the virus and take two to 14 days to present with symptoms. So if I'm exposed to the virus up to 14 days before I receive the vaccine, Again, there is a chance that I might develop a clinical picture of COVID-19, aka develop the symptoms of the disease. However, even with one dose of the vaccine on board, hopefully it will help decrease the severity of the disease for most patients. Okay, so, so you could be unlucky and coincidentally be infected and then have those symptoms show up after you get the shot, but the shot itself for any of these vaccines is not going to cause anyone to get COVID-19. Correct. And also, you know, this is true for the influenza vaccine as well. So there's always that period of time between receiving the vaccine and being fully protected, but the vaccines themselves cannot give you COVID-19. Okay. Or the flu. Or the flu. Okay. So we started to talk about these other vaccines. I understand that some other companies have their vaccines being evaluated in the FDA right now. So which ones are coming up and how do they work? So we have three more vaccines that are actually in phase three clinical trials right now. Some of them have released some preliminary data. 
that hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, but essentially it's the AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, and the Novavax vaccines. The AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson both use DNA uh, strands wrapped in an animal adenovirus that helps it come into the body. So instead of using a lipid layer to wrap their DNA strands, they're just using a different virus that comes from an animal to do that. The reason this technology is being used is because DNA is less fragile than RNA. So it actually allows for easier storage of those vaccines. Their vaccines, we expect that they will be able to be stored in a refrigerator, unlike Pfizer's vaccine that has to be stored in super cold freezers. So that's sort of one of the advantages of that particular vaccine. With the Novavax vaccine, they essentially use a protein that causes this spike protein for SARS-CoV-2 to be produced as well. So ultimately, all of them have the same end effect. They produce the spike protein for SARS-CoV-2, which activates our immune system and allows for production of antibodies and other cells that can defend us from the virus in the future. So when we compare what we have out now and what's coming is there any difference in terms of safety? Is there a difference in terms of effectiveness? Should, you know, should people, again, try to get one versus the other or hold out until one of the new ones comes out? So the data that we have so far from AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, um, and a lot of it is preliminary data, does indicate an efficacy of between 63 to 76% for these vaccines, depending on the time that the efficacy is checked, et cetera, et cetera. Um, again, my personal opinion is we should not wait for a vaccine that we feel might be better. All of these vaccines ultimately will lead to the same endpoint. Some might be a little bit more effective. Some might be a little bit less effective. But ultimately, they will help us protect ourselves against COVID. Okay, so last question. One of my last questions. Will these vaccines work against the new variants? What do we know about that so far? So what we know so far is that for the most part, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are still effective against the variants, though efficacy against variants does appear to be slightly decreased. The AstraZeneca vaccine had minif- minimal efficacy in mild to moderate COVID-19 cases, specifically due to the African variant, as it's commonly referred to. But it is likely still going to be highly effective against more severe cases of COVID-19, even with that particular variant. Okay, so basically they're still working. They may not work quite as well, but what we know so far is that they're still at least preventing severe disease pretty effectively. Yes. Okay. So I think you've addressed a lot of questions that people have about these new vaccines. I have one more question before we go to the audience questions. How many people do we need to have immunized for COVID-19 to go away? That's a great question and not one I have a straight answer to. So I actually double-checked with the CDC information that was recently released, and we don't know what that number is, what the percentage of people that we need to immunize is in order to achieve what we commonly refer to as herd immunity to COVID-19. We know that in the past, that number has been anywhere between 70% for polio vaccine and 95% for some of the other vaccines for uh, vaccine-preventable diseases. So most people are averaging that number to be someplace at 80% of the population 
needing to be immunized in order for us to be protected. That's a lot of people. If we aren't able to reach that threshold, is there any benefit to a young and healthy person getting the vaccine or should they just throw up their hands and skip it? Because again, their odds are better if they do contract the disease. Unfortunately, there is no certainties with COVID, right? So I would still highly recommend that everyone receive the vaccine because every person that receives the vaccine brings us so much closer to that goal. But also keep in mind that even without contributing to that goal, you're protecting yourself. So again, COVID doesn't choose. And we don't know how it chooses those that end up with a more severe case versus those that end up with a less severe case. So anything that you can do to to protect yourself during this period of time is absolutely something that I would recommend. And vaccine is certainly one of the tools that we can use to help protect ourselves at this time. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Nikosiewicz. We're now going to move to questions from the audience. And I see that we have a number that have been submitted coming in through the chat. So the first question that we have is, can someone with asthma take the vaccine? And I'm going to add on to that. Who should or should not get the vaccine? Great question. So let me answer the asthma portion first, and then I'll talk about the second portion of it. So Patients with asthma are actually generally at higher risk of severe COVID-19 disease, so they definitely should receive the vaccine. We don't have any evidence that shows that patients with asthma are at any higher of a risk of an adverse reaction from a vaccine compared to uh, the rest of the population that might be receiving the vaccine. So if that's a concern for some, we certainly don't have any evidence that shows that. We have administered in our clinic to patients with asthma with absolutely no issues who should and should not receive the vaccine. Anyone that is eligible should receive the vaccine. So for the Pfizer vaccine, patients 16 years of age and older, for the Moderna vaccine, anyone 18 years of age and older should receive the vaccine. Obviously we are moving in phases within the United States and the state of Illinois right now, we are moving in phases. So as soon as you are eligible, you should receive the vaccine. As I mentioned earlier, patients with an allergy to polyethylene glycol, so Miralax or any colonoscopy prep, should definitely have a discussion with their physician to determine how severe that allergy was and to determine if it's something that would preclude them from receiving the vaccine. Pregnant and lactating women, we don't have enough data on right now to say that the vaccine is safe and effective. So again, that is a discussion that they should have with their physician to determine whether the risks outweigh the benefits for them and vice versa in this particular case. And then there are some questions about patients who take specific chronic medications that have come up during my clinic days. So patients, for example, with rheumatoid arthritis, most of our patients who take rheumatoid arthritis medications should still receive the vaccine. The only thing that we don't know when it comes to those patients is because a lot of the medications that they might be using will actually decrease their immune response, we don't know if the vaccine will be as effective as it is in the rest of the population. So for those patients, it almost seems like they really should get the vaccine because they might be more susceptible to COVID if they get it. So they should do everything possible to reduce the risk of severe disease. Do you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Here's a pretty simple question, but I think a difficult answer. How long is the vaccine effective? Great question. And my answer, again, is going to be, we don't know for sure yet. We are still waiting to determine how long 
the antibodies actually remain at that perfective level within our bodies. The last estimates I saw said someplace about a year, but those are estimates we we don't know just yet. That might change. So from what you're saying, then it sounds like we might all have to get booster vaccines or an annual COVID shot. Um, it might not be that we're done once we finish our two shot series. Yes, that might be an option, but we don't know that for sure just yet. Okay, a couple more questions about ingredients. Jackie from YouTube asks, I've read, but I'm not sure if it's true that formaldehyde is an ingredient in the vaccines. So formaldehyde would typically be used as a preservative just in its general use in medicine. And the Pfizer vaccine actually does not have any preservative in it. So it's not a vaccine that contains preservative at all. And the Moderna's vaccine does not use any formaldehyde in it. So they don't have it? No. Okay. So how Mo from YouTube is asking, how long would it take for vaccines to be available to children and pregnant people? So vaccines are currently available to pregnant women. Uh, pregnant women are able to get the vaccine. Again, we do recommend that they consult with their physician prior to receiving it. As far as children go, uh, studies are still ongoing in children. So until those studies are completed and we have more data, uh, the vaccine will not be available to children. However, it is encouraging that I believe Moderna recently started studies in children six years of age and older. So we're expecting to see that data hopefully very soon and, and be able to make some decisions based on that. Okay. So Mo from YouTube is asking for those who are allergic to the vaccines, what alternatives do they have to be protected? Just the masks and social distancing? Is there anything else that they can do? So as of right now, masks and social distancing, as well as washing your hands regularly, is going to be the best protection that we can offer. Unfortunately, we don't have other options at this point in time. However, you know, patients that do have a severe allergy to polyethylene glycol may be able to receive some of the vaccines that are currently in the pipeline, depending on what the ingredients in those are. So stay tuned. Okay. So they'll use masks and social distancing for now and hope that one of the other vaccines will meet their needs. Angelica from YouTube is asking, is the vaccine safe for cancer treatments if they're currently receiving treatment? So the vaccine is safe. Again, it's an inactivated vaccine. So inactivated vaccines cannot harm a patient uh, just because they don't have an immune system. The one concern with a patient, with a cancer patient who is currently receiving treatment would be that they may not be able to mount an immune response. So there's specific numbers that we look at in terms of white blood cells that the patient has to have in their body in order to be able to respond to a vaccine appropriately. And if the patient doesn't have that particular amount in their body, they may not be able to produce the antibodies that they need in order to protect themselves from the disease. So it is safe, but it may not necessarily be as effective. So would you say that a cancer patient undergoing treatment should consult their physician as whether or not they should get the vaccine? Okay. Absolutely, because there are different types of treatments that are used. And with some treatments, it might be okay, but with others... They may have to wait a little bit. So Pam from YouTube is asking if the vaccine effectiveness depends on an initial inflammatory response, should vaccine recipients avoid ibuprofen when they get the vaccine? 
there are some conflicting studies regarding the use of ibuprofen um, and even acetaminophen in advance of receiving a vaccine that say that if you do that, you might have a blunted response to the vaccine, meaning a decreased response to the vaccine. However, those studies don't translate over into patients who take these medications after receiving the vaccine. So what we typically recommend to patients is do not pre-medicate, meaning do not take these medications before you receive the vaccine. However, if you do develop adverse effects, so if you develop a fever or a headache after receiving the vaccine, you can use acetaminophen or ibuprofen. Me personally, I prefer recommending acetaminophen because the studies seem to support acetaminophen a little bit more than ibuprofen, but you could do either or. Okay. And those medications, if someone were going to the pharmacy, brand name acetaminophen is Tylenol and ibuprofen is Advil or Motrin, correct? Yes. Okay. And so you prefer Tylenol, acetaminophen, but ibuprofen, Motrin is also probably fine. Yes. So there are several questions coming in about why the efficacy rates for the vaccines are so different, the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca as opposed to Pfizer and Moderna. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I can, and I don't have a very good answer, again, because we don't have a very good understanding. But one of the theories behind this is that uh, we've used adenovirus-delivered vaccines in the past. So we've used adenoviruses as packaging for vaccines in the past. And one of the theories is that it is possible our body recognizes this adenovirus as soon as it enters, and it actually uses our immune system to destroy it. So that might be why we're not seeing as high of an efficacy with these particular vaccines as we are with the mRNA vaccine, which, you know, being a new technology or a newer technology sort of has some advantages, right, in terms of our body never having seen this before and not being able to to actually react negatively to it before it's able to exert its action. So here's another question from YouTube. What is your response to someone who, you know, identifies as an anti-vaxxer? And, and really, that's just a position where, you know, people are, are concerned about safety primarily, and they're worried about other ingredients that are used in the vaccines. So I have encountered several patients who maybe weren't designating themselves as anti-vaxxers, but who were extremely hesitant about the COVID-19 vaccine and, and concerned about the fact, you know, all the things that we just talked about today. My response is always to provide the facts and try to leave my personal feelings out of it. So I feel very strongly about vaccines. I, I feel they're beneficial. Obviously, I work a lot with vaccines and I've seen the benefits that they can provide. But I try to leave that out of discussions with anti-vaxxers. I try to provide data. I try to provide information in a manner that hopefully makes them feel like I'm truly trying to provide education as opposed to trying to belittle their, their thoughts or, or the way they process information. So, you know, I'll usually acknowledge their concerns and then ask if we can talk about, you know, how I see that playing out in, in my terms and try to provide additional education so that we can come to a consensus. I've actually successfully discussed the vaccine with four people at the clinic that I was working with who were there to assist with administering vaccines, but had their own hesitancies regarding the vaccine. And after, you know, a half hour conversation, all of them agreed to, to receive it. 
Oh, that's great news. I've got another question about sort of contraindications for the vaccine. Pam asks, is there a special concern for patients on antiplatelet or anticoagulant medications? None at all. So these patients can come in and receive the vaccines. The only thing that we typically see with vaccines and patients who are on antiplatelet or anticoagulant medications is that they might bleed a little bit more at the site of injection. That's normal because their blood is thinner. But other than that, no concerns whatsoever. Okay. And one just came in from SB on YouTube saying that they've seen articles about people dying from the Pfizer vaccine. Do you know anything about this? And is this something that people should be concerned about? So I have seen so far one death, and I might have missed some of them, but I have seen one death that occurred after a person received a COVID vaccine. And I don't like saying from COVID vaccine, because just because things happened around the same time frame doesn't necessarily mean that they were caused by the vaccine. So the particular person that I saw died after receiving the Pfizer vaccine was a physician who died from a condition called ITP, idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura. And that idiopathic part of that name really means that we don't know what the cause of it is. That's something we use in medicine to describe not knowing the cause of the particular condition that we're talking about. And so it could have been caused by a lot of different mechanisms. There are a lot of different reasons this could have happened in this particular patient. We don't have enough cases to say that it was caused by the vaccine at this point in time. So I would say there is no evidence that was actually caused by the vaccine. Yes, it happened. And it's unfortunate that it happened. And of course, loss of life is always unfortunate. But we cannot say that it wasn't necessarily directly caused by the vaccine. Okay. It looks like we're out of time, Dr. Nikosevich. I want to thank you for this great conversation and for addressing so many questions and concerns about these new vaccines. And I want to thank our audience for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It truly has been a pleasure being here today. And thank you all for wonderful questions. And this concludes the second of our four discussions on the COVID-19 vaccine. Tune in live next week, Wednesday, February 24th from noon to one. We'll be talking with special guest, Dr. Tamara Marshall, about the disproportionate effect that COVID-19 has had on communities of color. You can find this session and every session in our discussion series on the RU Podcast and Justice for All. Thank you and see you next week. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.